Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Before we start today, I want to let you know that this is the last episode in our season about power. After this, we're going on a hiatus for the next few months to work on our next season. If you have thoughts or suggestions, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman, or you can reach me on my website, noah-feldman.com, where I also have a newsletter, which you can use so that we can keep in touch while I'm off the air. It's been a joy to explore behind the headlines with you all these last two seasons, and I want to take a moment to thank you for joining us on this journey over the years. Okay, on with the show. For our last episode of the season, we're returning once more to the biggest story of them all, the global pandemic. Joining us once again on just about the exact second anniversary of his first time on the show, we have Mark Lipsitch, the brilliant and influential epidemiologist from Harvard University's School of Public Health. Mark is a professor of epidemiology, and he directs the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. It's no exaggeration to say that Mark has been the go-to person for interpreting the trajectory of the COVID-19 pandemic and indeed for trying to make sense of its future. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. It's almost exactly two years since we first had a conversation in the very early days of realization of what was happening with COVID, and we've checked in periodically since. And I would like nothing better than for this to be a valedictory conversation on the topic so that next time we could talk about some other aspect of disease dynamics, but somehow it won't quite go away. So 
how many more times are you and I going to do this? I mean, put another way, how many more letters of the Greek alphabet are we going to need to learn? Is this, is the variant process one that is probabilistically likely to just come back again and again and again? Well, until we see a protracted period without new variants, we have to assume they will keep coming. What their characteristics will be, we can make some speculations about, but those speculations would not have probably included Omicron in the form that it had. So we should be humble about our speculations as well. I mean, I think when you have tens to hundreds of millions of people infected in any given short period of time around the globe with a virus, there is an opportunity for natural selection and genetic drift to play their tricks and and for new variants to evolve. And our immune systems impose selective pressure, our transmission behavior imposes selective pressure. So the ingredients are there. We all knew sort of intellectually that, that variants were a possibility. There was some hope that Maybe uh, the evolutionary rates were a little bit lower in, in coronaviruses, but that has not turned out to be true. And in fact, the big puzzle in some of my friends' minds right now is why is Omicron so different from, from the last one? So I think we're going to be at this COVID game for a long time. And the real question is what the impact of that on health is. and what the properties of these variants are, which is, I think, the hardest thing to predict, other than likely being more and more transmissible. And the easier thing to predict, but still not certain, is what is the state of us in terms of our immunity and the level to which vaccine and prior infection confer on us lasting immunity. I would love to learn more in our conversation, Mark, about what are the kinds of logics that you and your colleagues use when trying to talk about what those properties might be, understanding that they're not perfectly predictable? So you mentioned transmissibility. That seems like the obvious one. What are other criteria of fitness that you usually ascribe to viruses that would lead one to make any kind of speculations? And it might be interesting just to hear some examples of what you expected to happen and how Omicron differs from those. Yeah. Well, so <clears throat> transmission for the virus is sort of, roughly speaking, a, a two-part job. It has to find new naive hosts. And as those become less and less common, because more people are immune from prior infection or vaccination or both, it also needs to transmit to immune hosts. So one sort of generalization is that Initially, the selection is for more transmissibility when almost everyone is naive. And as more people are immune, it's always good to be more transmissible, but there's more and more of a premium on being able to escape immunity, particularly for infection and transmission, meaning there's not direct selection to escape immunity against severe outcomes. That may happen as a side effect of selection for immune escape, but that's not primary goal of the virus. So I mean, Mark, can I just interrupt for one quick second? I mean, it's never the primary goal of a virus to make you very sick. It's just that the virus will do whatever it takes to make more of the virus. And yes. if that happens to be that making you very sick does that, 
the virus will do that, um, at least insofar as it doesn't kill you and therefore make it harder to spread to more people, right? That's right. And that's why everybody's watching very carefully to see whether the immune escape of Omicron, for example, is uh, to what extent it also escapes the um, immunity to severe disease that people have. And it's less, but to some extent, it does escape even that level, that type of immunity. So, okay, so sorry I interrupted, but go, go ahead back to what you were saying. So as you say, the virus wants to make more copies of itself, wants in an evolutionary sense to make more copies of itself. There's been a long-standing discussion in the evolutionary biology community and parallel, mostly separate discussion in the medical and public health community about what that does to the severity of viruses. And in fact, that was what I wrote my PhD thesis on a long time ago, was making models of that interaction between the severity of the infection and the direct targets of selection, which are more transmission. So in the old days, people said, in a sort of hand-wavy way, without much quantitative reasoning, that if you kill somebody that you infect, then you can't spread uh, if you're a virus. And so viruses try to become, over evolutionary time, less harmful to their hosts, and at the same time, the hosts become immune. It was then, on sort of conceptual grounds, noted that that's true up to a point, but if a virus is trying to grow in a host and does so so weakly that it doesn't make more copies of itself, that's the other extreme. So killing the host is too much growth and not even making many copies of itself to transmit is the other extreme. And so the notion of that viruses evolve to an intermediate level of virulence to their host was sort of what many models predict. And then factors that can modulate that include how it's transmitted and the relationship between how many copies of itself it makes and the transmission rate. So the old idea, they always try to become more mild, is not widely held by people who know what they're talking about, but is widely held by, by, by the general people. public. Right. Yeah. So is it correct even to say that as a probabilistic matter of the viruses we know about, they are more likely to evolve to to being less harmful over time? Or is even that, which I've sometimes heard as a fallback statement, is even that not empirically observably true? I don't know if we have enough of the history of, of viral virulence to look back at and watch. The most famous experiment was the release of myxomatosis, a disease of rabbits caused by myxoma virus in Australia, which was done as an effort to kill off the Australian pest rabbit population. And indeed, that started out as an exceedingly virulent virus and did evolve to become less harmful. Beautiful experiments done by Frank Fenner, who was better known for smallpox eradication. He showed very conclusively that it did become milder. It didn't become mild, it became milder. And the counterbalancing problem was that if it became very, very mild, it just couldn't grow in the rabbits. So that's probably the best documented example of, of watching evolution in practice because rabbits and that virus both reproduce quickly. So you had a lot of generations each year. There is also a, a sort of mechanistic consideration that seems to be true in flu viruses and might be true also for Omicron, which is that replicating 
deep in the lungs is a different property from replicating further up the respiratory tract. Replicating deep in the respiratory tract down in the lungs is more likely to cause severe disease and replicating up at the top of the respiratory tract is more likely to spread. So to the extent that that's a trade-off, there might be some selection for transmission that is indirectly selection for mildness. But you can imagine a situation where that's not true. Is it fair to say then, so I'm trying to get at what one should say around educated people, somebody says, well, you know, the great thing about Omicron is that it shows you that like all viruses, this is getting more mild. I mean, the first thing to say is, that's an old view, and it's not on conceptual grounds, it's not necessarily true. And then there are certainly counterexamples of viruses that have not evolved to be substantially less virulent. Are there any that, that come to mind? What happened with smallpox, by the way, which, which you mentioned? My layman's sense is that smallpox was still pretty virulent at the, up to the time when it was eliminated. Yeah, that's right. What's difficult is that proving a negative is hard, and we didn't see the initial emergence of most viruses when they became human pathogens or pathogens of whatever organisms they infect. That's why Myxoma introduced into Australia was such a great example, was you could watch the whole time course. But I think it's hard to settle the history, especially because we usually also can't separate the changes in the host from the changes in the virus. Mm-hmm. In other words, as we become more immune, even the same virus will cause less severe disease. Mark, we want to warn readers not to generalize <laughs> from the myxoma case to thinking that's true of all viruses. Tell me again, so that I understand it, the conceptual reason that we cannot assume the way people did in the old days through hand-waving, as you said, that over time virulence would necessarily be reduced in this kind of detente picture. Virulence is selected along with transmissibility to maximize transmissibility. And so when there is a trade-off between making more copies of the virus and harming the host, the virus will choose uh, making more copies of itself. When there's a reinforcement between making more copies of itself and harming the host, the virus will choose making more copies of itself. So what it does to us, as you said at the beginning, it doesn't really care it's trying to maximize its own function. It, it is true that I think where there have been observations of evolution, the virulence has gone down in several examples. And I can't think of an example where it started mild and became more virulent that we can really document. But that would be hard to see if it did happen. We might just see when it jumped out. So I think the thing to say is that there are some examples where viruses have become more mild. And there are some reasons why that might happen. But more mild and completely harmless are very different things. And that that really the part that we can control is our immunity. We can control to some extent. And that is almost always a beneficial thing in terms of virulence of the virus. So that's, that's the part where at least we can do something about it. You mentioned that One thing that variants want to do is, of course, they want to find new naive hosts, but over time, that gets harder and harder. And so then they want to be able to get around immunity. Omicron seems to be pretty good at getting around immunity. Is there a sense, a clear sense now of how it does so? And if so, is that a strategy that is likely to be replicated in future variants? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what's striking about Omicron is that it not only has some mutations in its spike protein, which is a major target of antibodies, but it has a lot of mutations, more than it should given the amount of time that's passed if it were a typical virus out there. So I think the, the mechanism is still being understood in detail, but crudely speaking, the shape of its protein is different from the shape that the antibodies recognize, which were generated to previous variants. And so those antibodies don't bind as well. They don't neutralize as well and therefore don't work as well. Any sense, uh, people must be theorizing about this, you must be theorizing about this, about why the jump seems to be as big as it is from earlier variants? Yeah, the evolution was faster than is typical in typical humans. And so the the two leading hypotheses are it happened in a not typical human, meaning a human who perhaps had an immune system that was just good enough to exert selection, but not good enough to end the infection. Part of why evolution doesn't happen too much during a typical infection is that there's a lot of selection to escape it, but not much time before <laughs> the virus is gone and dead viruses don't mutate. So once you clear an infection, it doesn't have the chance to evolve further. Immunocompromised people in various forms often have much longer infections. And if they're deeply immunocompromised, then they may, they may not exert much selection on the virus and they may not survive for very long because they won't be able to control the virus. But if they are, and this is just speculation, immunocompromised in some particular way that allows the virus to persist, but maintains that selection pressure that could accelerate. The other class of explanations is that, as we've seen, the SARS-CoV-2 can infect other mammals. For example, there was a lot of interest in the white-tailed deer being infected. There were minks in, in Denmark that were infected earlier in the pandemic. So entering a new host species is often a trigger for accelerated evolution because the virus has a lot of new problems to solve to get good at infecting that host. And so those are the two major hypotheses that people have thought about. We'll be right back. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. 
AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Mark, a word that one hears more and more is COVID is on its way to being endemic. Sometimes you hear people getting fancy and talking about a state of endemicity. My question is, first of all, what's the working definition that epidemiologists use for that? So what does endemic actually mean to an epidemiologist? And the second is, in practice, what does that mean if and when we are there? I think we're <laughs> the dirty laundry of the epidemiology community continues to be aired, and different people use these words differently. But I think the, the core idea of endemicity is that an infection is present at some level, almost constantly in a population. And it may go through, say, seasonal swings. And sometimes you call that seasonal upturn an epidemic. And sometimes people call averaging over the whole year to be endemic, an endemic state. But it's a situation in which most people, by the time they reach some reasonably young age, have been exposed to the infection. That's an important characteristic and where the swings are either very small as with some infections that are just sort of pretty similar all year round, like some respiratory bacterial infections that, that are a little bit seasonal, but basically kind of always there at similar levels, or they're predictable swings that are every winter or every summer or something like that. So it has aspects of predictability of most people having prior exposure. And therefore, the reason why it's sort of a comforting word is that the two things that have really been miserable about SARS-CoV-2 have been the very large and unpredictable swings in the number of people infected, and the fact that it's preying on a population of us that is mostly naive to it, and therefore at greater risk of having bad outcomes than we will be when we've all had the infection and or vaccination. The upshot then, if I understand you correctly, is that even though endemic and epidemic are obviously etymologically related in terms of their relationship to the public, they're not in any very, very sharp relationship to each other because something can be endemic and yet there can be epidemics that are seasonal. Um, 
Is that right? So the, those two, yeah, and so yet, I, or you can have an epidemic that is not endemic, right. or you can have something that is endemic and it's not epidemic. So it seems to have almost all the possible yeah. logical relationships. Right. But I think I think the the more helpful contrast probably is pandemic versus endemic. Ah, so the signal features of pandemics, although these are also re- revised as we as we have more of them because each one is special. But the signal features of pandemics are a, a very naive population that is at experiencing something for for the first time and uh, being very widespread and having large swings in incidence and prevalence because of those two things. So those so are that's, all differences. Yeah, so that's super helpful. I mean, that's super helpful because one can sort of think a pandemic, nobody has it at first, then lots of people get it in bunches and that's the pandemic. Endemic, everybody's been exposed to it from the time that they were pretty small children, but it's still out there in the population. That seems to be very, very helpful. The thing that is a bit confusing to to me, at least, is if we think about the relationship, say, of Omicron to the earlier versions of COVID, it seems like even though, in principle, we should be moving to a place where almost everybody has been exposed or vaccinated, one of the two, that lots of people who were previously exposed to those other things or were vaccinated are getting Omicron because of its capacity to evade immunity. And if that's the case, do you guys start thinking of it as as though it were a separate disease? And so therefore it doesn't really matter if, let's say it becomes endemic, let's say Omicron becomes endemic, but something a new variant comes along that evades immunity, then aren't people sort of a naive population again with respect to that new variant if they're evading immunity? Yeah, that is the big question. The the reason why Omicron has been bad but not worse than it was is that the combination of somewhat lower severity and growing amounts of population immunity to severe disease, which still to a large degree, though not perfectly, hold against Omicron, has meant that there are enormous numbers of cases but not correspondingly many deaths and hospitalizations. And that's a kind of new thing. We haven't had a flu experience that's quite like that. And we haven't had a SARS-CoV-2 experience that's quite like that. So this is a a new combination of properties to to deal with. One way that I find it helpful to think about what's ahead in the next few years is that, as you say, the the bad option will be if uh, new variants continue to come And they really are either so good at escaping immunity and transmitting that the the cases go shooting up as they have with Omicron, or they are really good at escaping our immunity to severe disease, which was not that high at the beginning of Omicron, should be higher after Omicron, we hope. But if they're good at escaping our immunity to severe disease, then even modest numbers of cases could be a problem. And that would be like almost like a new flu pandemic. It would be a, an evolutionary jump that is highly consequential and is what we used to talk about with flu pandemics. Right. It's the reason that the flu vaccine, it's a good thing to get it, but it doesn't guarantee that you won't get the flu, right? Because the variants come so fast, right? Uh, partly and partly because they just aren't fully protective even against what they're supposed to target. Ah, they're not nearly as good as these vaccines. Not as good as these vaccines, I see. I kind of categorize like the, the two possible futures are 
that we have changes like the usual changes between years of flu, or we have changes like new flu pandemics that just are more frequent. And those are the two broad categories that we really, really hope the first happens, but we have to consider the possibility of the second. Mark, I'm trying to figure out what the right kinds of policy responses are at this moment, partly in order to get sense of what they're going to look like going forward if we have more variants. So for example, at our mutual employer, Harvard University, on the one hand, we have classes, at least at the law school, in person, but we are all told not just to wear masks, but to wear N95 masks and possibly to wear two masks. And there seems to be a heightening of concern about transmission because I guess of the great transmissibility of Omicron. On the other hand, we were in person, which we weren't obviously at an earlier stage. And what's more, everyone is mandatorily vaccinated and boosted. So what, what's the policy logic, if you can reconstruct it, behind that kind of heightened prevention coupled with diving right in and having classes? Well, a- another part of it, at least at our school of public health, is that contact tracing is basically now left to the individual. There's no centralized contact tracing. So putting that together with what you just described, my interpretation is that people are trying to do the things that are efficient and relatively low impact that reduce transmission while reallocating resources from very, very costly in terms of time efforts like contact tracing and trying to return to doing as much of what we're supposed to be doing as a university as possible. So that's my interpretation. And in an environment where, let's say, almost everybody or everybody has been vaccinated and boosted, then the goal would be try to avoid too many people getting Omicron so that they have to miss class and stay home and give more people Omicron, but nevertheless still try to push forward with as much normalcy as can be mustered under these circumstances. And I guess the question that that leads me to is, and it's not that I think either of us has the answer to it, but I want to talk about it. Is this the new normal, right? I mean, is there any reason if people can bear going to class in masks or teaching in masks, will there be a policy argument to be made going forward that even if as the Omicron surge continues to decline, as it's doing in Massachusetts, we should just stick with this because it's a good preventive measure? To get people to comply with something like that, there would have to be a continuing real threat of severe outcomes in large numbers in the population's doing those behaviors and or of overwhelming healthcare, which are closely related, of course, right. although not perfectly correlated because the burden on hospitals from Omicron has been enormous, though the, the severity has been less. And that's because so many people were getting it at the same time. So I can't imagine that in a few years, we will all be wearing masks for our daily life. I don't expect it because I think In my mind, the most likely scenario is that our immunity to severe disease continues to get amplified by probably continued vaccination and also continued circulation of the virus, and that this becomes a vaccine-preventable disease, at least for the severe manifestations, and therefore we will start to dial back these control measures as they are dialing back in fact, in many parts of the country already. 
Well, in some parts of the country, they never really dialed up. Right. Right? They were dialed back yeah. from the very beginning and they never yeah. stopped. Yeah. I, I have a good friend in Oklahoma who, uh, this is long ago in this process, I asked him something about a public lecture and I said, he, he mentioned a public lecture. I said, there's going to be a public lecture. And he just laughed and he said, we, we have never stopped doing these things. He said, and by the way, my wife and I and all of our kids have had COVID. Um, yeah. So it's, there's clearly a lot of local variation around the country. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's important to to consider all the ways things could go bad, and it's really hard to do that at the same t- and actually really put policy energy towards preparing for those, and at the same time to have I think a reasonable level of optimism, like a realistic level of optimism that those things might well not happen, and we probably will not be wearing masks in a few years. I think, and maybe even much sooner than that. So, I mean, I think it's even possible that in, say, April, the amount of Omicron immunity will be so great that, that we'll have a long rest from, from this. But it's also possible that we will have a new variant that creates bigger problems. Last question, Mark. One of the optimistic thoughts, I don't want to say fantasies, but hopes, that one sometimes hears about response to potential future variants is, one vaccine to rule them all, like some sort of a vaccine that is sufficiently protein and powerful that all it'll affect almost all coronaviruses or maybe all coronaviruses such that, you know, whatever these variants may be, they will probably be coronaviruses and then we'll fall under that rubric. I guess what I'm wondering is from a, from the standpoint of epidemiology, do you have any thoughts on what are the probabilities of such a thing being possible? Are there other instances or areas where we've had effective vaccines that cover like a broad range of phenomena under some rubric, like say coronavirus? Yeah, there have been. And the approach so far that has been the most effective with the vaccine that I used to study before COVID, which was the pneumococcal vaccine and with the polio vaccine and with the flu vaccine is to just try to vaccinate people against everything that's around at once. And then with flu to change it over time. So those precedents exist, but other than flu, those are for things where there's a lot of variation and you need coverage of a whole bunch of different variants, but you, you have a list of them. It's not a changing list. It's just the list or maybe a new one's discovered periodically, but it's kind of a fixed list especially of the ones that are worst. So that approach is well-worn. There is a very strong effort right now underway in many quarters to create uh, pan-coronavirus vaccines. There will be different approaches of trying to put in uh, a mix of different types or of trying to find parts of the virus that are more conserved where immunity will be effective. And there's reason to be optimistic, but but it still has to be proven. So I think it's a very worthwhile effort and we have to see if it works. Mark, thank you so much again for your insights. And I would say that I look forward to more conversations <laughs> and that would be true about the substance of the conversations um, because a conversation with you is always illuminating. I hope we don't need too many more, but my guess is we will be checking in in one form or another. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to talking about something else sometime soon. <laughs> We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. 
Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. As always, when talking to Mark Lipsitch, there are clear takeaways. First, as a probabilistic matter, it is overwhelmingly likely that variants are going to keep coming, possibly for a long time. The reason for that, Mark explains, is that there is virus out there in the population. And while virus is out there among a large number of people, the probability that evolution will continue to do its work and develop new variants remains. Next, Mark points out that Omicron has been a surprise in various respects, most particularly in how different it is than the variants that came before it, thereby suggesting that for various possible reasons that we're not yet sure of, the evolutionary process is happening faster than we previously expected. Third, and this is to my mind very important, we should not accept the viewpoint which we sometimes hear expressed by non-experts that all viruses necessarily evolve in the direction of becoming less virulent. In fact, 
the virus will do whatever it takes to replicate itself, seen in evolutionary metaphorical terms. And that means that if it turns out that the virus can spread more effectively while being less virulent, it will do so. But if the virus needs to be more virulent in order to spread more effectively, it will do that too. Consequently, we cannot generalize and assume that we are on the way to things automatically, gradually getting better via Omicron. Fourth, we are certainly approaching some quality that could be called endemicity or a state of being endemic for COVID-19, defined to mean that almost everybody in the population will have been exposed to the disease, often relatively early in life. However, and this is the big however, whether that matters in the long run, in terms of making it less likely that people get very sick, depends entirely on how good future variants are at avoiding immunity. If people get sick when young and retain immunity, then that is a good result in terms of the effects of endemicity. But if future variants on the virus can still infect people who have nevertheless been exposed, the serious and indeed severe problems associated with the healthcare system and COVID-19 could in principle continue even when the disease is endemic. Last and very much not least, Mark says that the possibility of a vaccine that would effectively block future variants by virtue of it being general enough to prevent all forms of the coronavirus from spreading or alternatively from getting the people who get them very sick is worth pursuing. Whether it will succeed or not, of course, remains an unknown and not something on which it's possible to put a probabilistic numerical judgment. At the human level, Mark says he thinks it's very unlikely that in a couple of years, or even sooner than that, we'll all still be walking around wearing masks. That, for one, leaves me some reason to continue to be hopeful. Ultimately, and this is me talking, not Mark, the power of this virus has been to shape the way we in the world respond to it in a broad set of complicated ways that themselves deploy our own conception of social power. Disease has power. Humans have power in responding to disease. All of it involves us in a set of complex trade-offs and choices. The difference between us and evolution is that evolution is making those choices blindly, with no normative vision of how it wants to be or how the world should be arranged. We, as humans, are in a different position. Our judgments can be thoughtful, strategic, and ethically inclined. And with any luck, they will continue to be. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we here at Deep Background are going to take a hiatus for a few months as we work on our next season. We'll miss you, but I very much hope to hear your voices through reaching me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman, or perhaps even more efficiently, on my website at noah-feldman.com. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and if at all possible under the circumstances of our world, try to have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, 
Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.